0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the energy crunch in British Columbia. Demand for power is rising in B.C. Last year, we imported 20% 20% of our electricity primarily from the United States. That was a record last year, highest imports ever for power in British Columbia. Got Kevin Falcon standing by, leader of BC United, leader of the opposition. Big summit on natural resources this week in Prince George. BC Premier David Eby was there this week. He made a big announcement about expansion of BC Hydro infrastructure. Have a listen here.
1: It's an assurance to you that you will have access to clean, stable, affordable electricity, to decarbonize your operations, and to build jobs in British Columbia.
0: Okay, that's a big announcement there by the government here this week. The opposition also a big announcement today with a resource prosperity plan outlined by Kevin Falcon, the opposition leader. He joins me now. Kevin, thank you for coming on.
2: And thanks very much for having me, Mike.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for doing it. First, let's start with your reaction to the announcement from the, the EB announcement there, $36 billion multi-year plan there to expand hydro infrastructure. What do you think of this
2: plan? Well, first of all, you know, this is so classic NDP. What they did is they took a 10-year capital plan that BC Hydro already had in place. $24 billion of that thirty six was was already monies that they had in place. So really what they're saying is, we're now going to add $12 billion over 10 years, which is just over $1.2 billion a year. Um, frankly, a rounding error in that company's uh, infrastructure. But the reason why they make these announcements is because it is a massive acknowledgement of the failure that they've done for British Columbia in making sure that we have expanded electricity options. Now, just to understand, and I really want your listeners to remember this, they strongly and vociferously opposed BC Liberal government's that is what we're now called BC United, back when we were pushing and starting the Site C dam. In fact, I was yeah. there in 2010 with Gordon Campbell when we launched the Site C plan. Christy Clark pushed it through, and the NDP stridently opposed it. Then the second thing they did, Mike, you may recall this, they cancelled and wouldn't renew any of the independent power projects we did because one of the things yeah. that we did is we recognized even with Site C, we wanted to expand the pool of, uh, of renewable power sources so we did these independent power projects that were made up of solar wind tidal run of the river projects all feeding in to ensure that we would have electricity self-sufficiency which we actually wrote into the clean into our clean energy act now what they did is they canceled those projects they refused to renew them they said it was a giveaway to gordon campbell's corporate friends and supporters all that usual left you know left-wing language they love to pull out and and where are we today well Last year, there's David Eby saying, uh, actually, even with Site C, we're going to need more power. So we're going to go out and do what? Get independent power yeah. so that we can help. Yeah. And the problem is we're seven years behind schedule. And so their announcement the other day up north is just an acknowledgement of the fact that they've taken us in the wrong direction to the point where we're now importing power from the United States. Sixty percent of it is fossil fuel driven power.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you reminded the listeners there about the history of the Sightsee Dam, because thank God this dam got built, and hopefully they throw the switch on it next year, because we badly need this power right now. Let's go into the the Wayback Machine here. I'm going to play a clip here. This is John Horgan, okay, then the NDP leader, speaking in 2014, uh, against the Site C Dam. Listen to what he says here. Is it all? We don't. We won't. Don't need this power. Have a listen to this.
2: We don't need the energy today. The cost will be prohibitive. The environmental consequence is significant. The agricultural consequence is significant. We have a surplus of energy now. I've been talking about this for a number of years. We're, we have more energy in British Columbia than we need. Yeah, we
0: have a surplus. We don't need it. We've got more power than we than we know what to do with. They didn't want to build this dam. The, the only reason they built the C dam, Kevin Falcon, for, for your thoughts, they did not want to complete this project. It was just too far along to stop it, right? Otherwise, they would have killed it.
2: Absolutely. They would have absolutely killed it. Thank God the professional civil servant somehow managed to get across to them that maybe it might not be a good idea to write off $5 billion of investment that had already been made as that thing was moving along. But they still took a year trying to figure out whether they even wanted to go forward with it. But here's the thing, Mike, and this is really important. It's not just Site C. The biggest three projects that we have going on in BC right now are Site C, the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and the Coastal Gas Link LNG Canada Project. Together, those three projects represent about $80 billion of capital. And they're distinguished by two things. Number one, they were all supported by BC United government's formerly BC Liberal, and number two, they were all opposed by this NDP government that was then in opposition. And I just yeah. want people to think for a second, if those three projects weren't here today, if, if the NDP had been in power back then, then that would mean 50,000 jobs that are currently working on those three projects, all of which earn over 100000 a year family-supporting jobs, would disappear, all the investment would have disappeared, all the benefit for communities would have disappeared, and that's why when you have a government that doesn't understand business, doesn't understand leadership and how to make generational decisions, not political, you know, electoral decisions, but generational decisions uh, is not going to be good for this province. Okay.
0: Let me ask you about what what your government would do it, should you be, become the premier here in, the, in the, the next election scheduled in the fall. Because I listened closely to the EB announcement here, $36 billion for BC Hydro uh, expansion. A lot of it is infrastructure that is badly needed, but I didn't hear anything about actual power generation. Like, we obviously need the infrastructure to transmit and distribute the power around British Columbia. We're way overdue on that. But what about generating new power? That seems to be the, the missing part, isn't it? Well,
2: absolutely. And, and, and please, I, I, your, your, your public really needs to understand this. You know, um, they just cancelled the Fortis BC $327 million proposal to expand their natural gas pipeline to make sure that there's going to be heating for one of the fastest growing parts in the province of Okanagan. They canceled that and BCUC, which, you know, David Eby fired the chair and put in his own chair that's going to follow his direction. BCUC acknowledged that the reason they were doing this was because the NDP's so-called Clean BC Plan, which we call Cost BC, actually says that they can't have any major projects happening in B.C. anymore because they have to shrink the GDP by 10% in order to meet their ridiculous um, um, targets for emission reductions in B.C. And and so that actually means you have to shrink the economy. But what it also means for the Okanagan residents is that in the next two years, they could be facing rolling brownouts or blackouts. And that's the kind of short-termism, short-sightedness that's harming us. Would, so you, so would you would you approve thing. would you
0: approve that pipeline if you if you Absolutely. become if you win the election? Okay. How would you okay, do that? This, so you Mike, would, Mike, you would, would overrule Go ahead. You would overrule the, the, the
2: Utilities Commission and approve that pipeline? No, I would scrap clean BC, which is one of the reasons why they are saying they have to make that decision, because David Eby and the NDP have said we have to shut down all new sources of, of production that are going to add to our, our emissions. And, yeah. and the problem is At this most recent cold snap we just went through, it's important to recognize that Fortis delivered double the energy of BC Hydro, 22,000 megawatts versus the 11,000 that hydro produced. Can you imagine? We've got a government now that wants to shut down natural gas as a source of heat in the fastest growing province in the country. Uh, And and where are we going to replace that? What with? And that's the short-sightedness, just like the short-sightedness on not uh, supporting Site C.
0: Can you b- briefly remind the listeners where you stand on the carbon tax here, and we got a carbon tax increase scheduled to kick in here on April 1st. Let me play a clip of David Eby here going after you for flip-flopping on the carbon tax. Here's what he had to say about you, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Eby.
1: The other side of the house is desperate to justify their about-face on climate action. Yeah. Yeah. It's embarrassing. They will say anything to get elected.
0: Okay, so he says you'll get any say anything to get elected. It's embarrassing your flip flops on climate change. Like, what what is your position on carbon tax? That's
2: really simple. The carbon tax that the BC Liberals, now BC United, brought in in 2008, that was supported by virtually everybody John Rastad, myself, uh, environmentalists, was a revenue neutral carbon tax, meaning by law every penny had to be returned to the public in the form of. Lower personal income taxes, lower small business taxes. When the NDP got elected in 2017, they changed the law and said, we're not going to give back that money. We're going to take it all into government. Then they more than doubled it. And now David Eby and the NDP want to triple it in the next six years. There is no way I'm signing off on that at a time when British Columbians are struggling just to meet their family budgets. Not a chance. It's become a tax grab. It was never meant to be a tax grab. It was always a tax shift. So I'm not supporting that. We're not signing off on it. I'm going to oppose them on trying to triple it over the next six years and get back to making sure that we look after people's financial interests because they are struggling.
0: Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it.
2: No problem. Thanks very much for having me,
3: Mike.
0: All right, we started the show today talking about the energy crunch here in British Columbia. Last year, we had to import 20% of our power. That is the highest import ever in B.C. history. And by the way, that's the only reason we got through that cold snap that we had last weekend was because hydro had imported enough power and saved it up that we're able to get through. So that is why we were able to keep the, the heat going. Now, you take a look next door in Alberta, where they had the power grid alerts last weekend. Take a look at what's going on south of the border in Washington State. Uh, they've had some power shortages, too. This is at the same time, we've got a government wants to ramp up and electrify our economy. We're encouraging people to buy electric vehicles. We're encouraging people to heat their homes with electric heat pumps. Where's all this power going to come from? Now, Hydro has got a plan to expand wind power, wind power in British Columbia, which is fine. But will that be enough? A lot of experts dubious about that. Now, here's the question. What about nuclear? What about nuclear power? Other provinces are doing it. Ontario gets most of their power from nuclear. New Brunswick has nuclear power. Next door in Alberta... They're taking a look at nuclear power now. Got Dr. Chris Kiefer standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Justin Trudeau here first. This is on a recent recent visit to British Columbia to talk about energy production here. Listen to what he says about nuclear at the end here. Have a listen.
1: We need to reduce our emissions, and we need to reduce our uh, dependence on oil and gas. We're going to need more electricity, and I know there are a lot of brilliant uh, uh, innovators here in B.C. and across the country leaning in on that. Nuclear is on the table, absolutely.
0: Nuclear is on the table. Mm, Okay, let's discuss with Dr. Chris Kiefer, now President, Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Very pleased to welcome him. Chris, thank you for coming on today.
3: Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet I appreciate it a lot. So when we take a look at the energy grid across the whole country, it's on Ontario is, is the most nuclear dependent right now, right?
3: Yeah, we're the nuclear heartland. Um, We built uh, 20 reactors in 22 years, um, large candy reactors, which essentially have made us an ultra low carbon jurisdiction. We're not blessed in the way that Quebec and BC are with endless hydroelectricity, although from your introduction, we're hearing that it's not endless. Um, But we have achieved similar to BC, an ultra low carbon grid. Um, We had Niagara Falls, but we ran out of hydro. We used to do a lot of coal. We were able to phase out coal completely it was 25 percent of our grid using nuclear so it's been an incredible air quality and environmental and emission success story here Um, there was uh, a reactor in quebec which has been decommissioned although they're looking at restarting it given they're having similar issues as bc they're they're running into the edge of their hydro capacity and also new brunswick has a a nuclear reactor so there's a proud canadian history developing its own uh, nuclear reactor which runs on natural uranium Um, it's an incredible accomplishment um, certainly I'm biased here, but I think it's something that D.C. should should look at.
0: Yeah. And when you take a look next door in Al- Alberta here and I was reading the headlines this week about Alberta taking a look at these small modular reactors. Right. Can you tell me about that? What's going on there?
3: Well, I mean, first off, let's talk about Alberta for a second. Sure. Um, they narrowly made it through this cold snap. They yeah. made a really big investment in wind and solar. I mean, almost 6,000 uh, megawatts. To, to give you perspective, 12,000 megawatts is where they set a new peak demand during this cold snap. And unfortunately, wind and solar are what I call fair weather friends. Um, those resources were essentially entirely absent uh, during that period. So, yeah, Alberta is now looking at its alternatives. Obviously, it's got. You know, a lot of gas, and that's uh, you know the dominant resource on the system. They've almost phased out their coal using gas, um, but you know, given the failure to show up, the fair weather friend nature of wind and solar, there's a reevaluation in Alberta. And yes, they're looking at nuclear. Um, they're looking at reactors that are about half the size uh, to uh, a third the size of the large Candus that we have in Ontario. It's a better size for their grid. Um, although maybe BC and Alberta could get together and build some bigger reactors and share the juice.
0: Okay, well, it's interesting about the, these small modular reactors, these SMRs. We keep hearing all about these things and whether that is the path forward in the future here. But, Chris, let me play a clip here for you get your thoughts. Because there are opponents to this idea who say, no, 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 this is just some sort of myth or spin coming from the nuclear industry. This is not going to work. It would be expensive as hell. Yeah, so have a listen here. This is M.V. Romana, who is a professor at UBC, He's a professor in nuclear policy. He's not buying this SMR uh, argument. Let's listen.
1: Because you are trying to control a very hazardous process, it's necessarily a very expensive process. And the only way the nuclear industry has figured out how to reduce costs is to build big so that you can reduce the per unit costs. And so when you go to smaller reactors, you lose out on those economies of scale.
0: Okay, so he says these smaller reactors would not be as economical. What do you say to that?
3: I have to say, Professor Ramana, I think, is one of uh, the most intelligent anti-nuclear activists in the country. That is an untested premise. It's true that nuclear has scaled larger and larger. Our can started off at 200 megawatts, a little smaller than what's being looked at in Alberta, and have scaled upwards uh, from 500 up to about uh, 900 megawatts. Um, so I will hand it to MB Ramana. Um, this is an untested question. Um, but let's let's talk about this for a second. I mean, when you talk about building a hydro dam, this yeah. is an asset that's very expensive up front. Nuclear and hydro have a lot in common, but they provide value for 100 plus years. And nuclear is up there as well. I mean, we've renewed our, our fleet here in Ontario. Many of the reactors are going to be going 70 years. Um, there's no reason why we can't renew them again to go 100 years with a nuclear reactor. So if you're looking at just a short return on investment, um, nuclear and hydro don't look amazing. If you're thinking in a long-term way like we should be for our children or their children's generation and and for a climate action that's durable um, and power that's reliable and doesn't, you know, not a fair weather friend that doesn't go away when the weather gets extreme, you know, climate change may bring some more extreme weather, um, then nuclear looks very attractive. Um, So, you know, I tend to favor our made-in-Canada homegrown nuclear technology. We do have a, you know, five, six hundred megawatt size reactor. I think Alberta should build those personally. Um, But, you know, SMRs, uh, you know, may be a good match in smaller grids, particularly grids like Saskatchewan. Okay,
0: what about safety? And when you take a look at the list of nuclear accidents that have happened around the world and you read these names that are basically seared into the public conscience over time, right? Like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. What do you say to that? Like a lot of people are concerned about the safety record of this industry. What is your answer to that?
3: So, yeah, I mean, the the reactor technology itself has improved over the years. The operations have improved over the years. I mean, Chernobyl, it was run by, you know, an incompetent Soviet country with with a terrible safety culture and a terrible reactor that didn't have containment. You know, the opposite there is, you know, Three Mile Island um, where they had a partial meltdown. There's containment. And the highest dose that the surrounding population was exposed to was about a chest X-ray worth of radiation. I'm a medical doctor. I work in the emergency department. I do X-rays all the time. I do CT scans, which are much higher doses of radiation. Nobody um, suffered any radiation-induced injury um, at uh, Three Mile Island. And actually, at Fukushima as well, there were no deaths related to radiation from what's really a worst-case scenario. I mean, three simultaneous meltdowns of large reactors um, the doses just weren't high enough with the current technology that we have. Now, a Fukushima event is not possible in something like a candu reactor because Canadians have truly designed the safest reactor technology in the world. Um, so, you know, the accidents are something that we need to be thinking about, um, but we've learned a lot about. And, you know, in the history of civ- civilian nuclear power, particularly outside of the Soviet Union, you know, there's essentially been zero deaths from radiation. You compare that to another risky industry like aviation, right, where, you know, despite an incredible safety culture and, and it's reminiscent of nuclear in terms of the professionalism and regulation that goes into the two industries, we still lose a few hundred people every year in airline crashes. Uh, nuclear, nuclear does very, very well there. You know, there have been the, hmm. the biggest disaster in terms of power generation was a was a hydro dam collapse in China, which killed over 100000 people nearly instantly. Does that mean we shouldn't do hydroelectricity anymore? No, we build dams yeah. way better here in Canada. We know how to manage the risk. We have evacuation zones. You know, I've, I've been in B.C. and, uh, you know, been on the beautiful west coast of Vancouver Island and seen, you know, the warning areas. You might have to evacuate yeah. quickly. Um, yeah. we, we manage risk. So you know, in my mind, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to minimize or dismiss the accidents, but they have been really overblown, and that, that's because of our fear of of nuclear energy arising out of, you know, the the weapons aspect of the technology.
0: Chris Kiefer is my guest, Canadians for Nuclear Energy full phone board here. Let's go to Steve in the West End. Hi, Steve, go ahead.
4: Hey, Mike. I'm from what I've read. I'm I'm much more pro nuclear now. Canada produces a lot of it. It's a green source of energy. And they can dispose of it way better now than the old days, I guess. But my question to the doctor is this, please: I, I'm curious to know about the energy density of uh, of nuclear compared to other renewable sources. I'm just going to hang up and listen to what. What, he what does have to that say. mean? What does that mean? Energy density. The, the input, the input, uh, the input, of say the input versus the output of energy. So we, we have to put inputs. Um, we have to we have to invest, and we need a uh, certain you know certain electrical, um, uh, mechanical things for wind and solar. And I'm just wondering okay. What, okay. what kind of output versus the investment input
3: are we yeah, looking Okay over t- Okay, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, energy density is the strength of the technology, and it really determines the environmental impact. The Sierra Club in the 1950s and 60s actually had a campaign called "Atoms, Not Dams" because they were very concerned <laughs> with the pristine valleys. I mean, valleys like the famous Yosemite Valley. Who who knows? Maybe it would have got dammed. Um, so they actually supported the construction of nuclear power plants in California to spare that beautiful natural environment. Um, you know. Again, the strength here compared to our fair weather friends in wind and solar is that those resources are very energy dilute. They take up hundreds of of more, uh, 100 times, 200 times more land area in terms of um, the amount of of land that you physically need to dedicate. So I think there's a kind of um, very successful, almost kind of greenwashing campaign from uh, wind and solar lobbyists, you know, they're called farms, they sound natural. Um, you know, we are harvesting natural flows of energy in terms of the sun and the wind, but these are very energy dilute, which means we need to put up a lot of machines. Machines made out of yeah. steel, made out of you know fossil fuel-derived des- resins for the uh, the turbine blades polysilicon, which is literally, you know, we think of aluminum as taking a lot of electricity. It's, you know, and they joke about it as congealed electricity. Polysilicon is even worse. It's made using coal-fired electricity over in China for the, for the most part. And it's also made with, you know, credible allegations of slave labor and about 40 percent of that production. So, you know, there's been an incredible public relations campaign um, for wind and solar. But yes, as the listener is saying, these are energy dilute sources um, and they require a lot of materials, a lot of mining to get, you know, the 500, uh, sorry, the 250 tons of steel needed for a wind turbine tower, for instance, the rare earth minerals that are needed. So nuclear has the benefit of the lowest impact on nature in terms of land footprint and also in terms of the mining required. A nuclear plant might Mm -hmm. look large, there's a lot of cement there. But the amount of power being produced, like my local nuclear plant, it's the size of a small shopping mall, and it powers the city of Toronto. You know, we're talking yeah. the GTA, like five, six million people. Um, so, yes, that's, that's a big strength of the technology.
0: Kelly and Tawassan. Hi, Kelly, go ahead.
4: Hi, Kelly. Hi, uh, good morning. I was just, I used to live in Ontario, and in Ontario, we had
2: the nuclear power plant in um, Pickering. And I was just wondering, we are an earthquake-prone location in B.C., and I'm just concerned about the impact on nuclear power if there is a massive earthquake. It doesn't seem to be something that would be a very safe option, in my opinion. And we have liquefied natural gas in abundance. I think it's really short-sighted for our governments to not consider liquefied natural gas as a heat source. And I agree, the rolling blackouts, Kevin Falcon, not my favorite human being uh, as of his past history, but he was bang on with his assessment of the fact that we have the
4: liquidified natural gas, we need pipelines.
0: Okay, thank you for a great question. Okay, Chris,
3: what about that earthquake threat? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, nuclear power plants are probably the re- most robust buildings humanity has ever built. Um, so the nuclear island is seismically isolated. And, you know, you've heard about Fukushima and you'll hear, well, there was an earthquake there. The, all the reactors in Japan automatically shut down as they were designed to do. There wasn't earthquake-induced damage to the nuclear plants. The issue was this massive tsunami. This was the fourth largest earthquake we've ever measured. It changed the axis of the earth to give you a sense of that power. And, you know, unfortunately, there had been an oversight in terms of the size of the seawall. And, you know, the, the tsunami washed over that and washed over some of the backup power needed to, to cool the power plant. So earthquakes are absolutely something that needs um, planning around. Right. And with Fukushima, there were massive um, changes in terms of plant design um, that affected some plants around the world. But in terms of the plants themselves, these are the most robust structures we've ever built. They're like the Egyptian pyramids, Um, you know, in terms of that question around uh, liquefied natural gas. Um, you know the the Clean BC plan um, requires you know this 40% reduction in emissions by 2030, net zero by 2050. So the way that they're they, you know they're invested in in the Kitimat LNG plant, for instance, but they want to electrify it yes. um, as to make the emissions as low as possible. That's going to require just that Kitimat LNG facility all of the electrical output of something like the Site C dam. You know they're also wanting to do green hydrogen products projects, similar kind of uh, power demand that's required. There's no more room for site C dams in B.C., as I understand. The large hydro yeah. opportunities are gone. And so a choice needs to be made. Um, and you need to compare all your alternatives side by side. And You have to say, OK, what's the okay. environmental impact? What's the land footprint? What is the emissions, et cetera? And, and nuclear really wins out when you look okay. at that calculation, in my mind. It,
0: it's been really great listening to you, uh, to you make the case here for it. And uh, we got a ton more calls coming in, so we'll just have to have you back. Thank you for coming on today.
3: My pleasure, yeah. Happy to come back, Mike. It's been a lot of fun. All right, let's talk about the apartment
0: tenants in White Rock shivering in the cold now. The heat has been off for a week. The Fur House Apartments in White Rock, this is an older building. Some of the residents have lived there for literally for decades including Odette Slezas 92 years old and have a listen to this i got Trevor Halford standing by to discuss have a listen to this report you'll you'll hear from 92 year old Odette here in this report uh, from global news let's listen 90 year old Odette Slezas has been without central heating for nearly a week amid record low temperatures Warm heater this nice warm blanket And uh, I put the heat on in the oven for a while until it warms up and wearing warm clothes. Odette's daughter, Michelle, has flown in from Edmonton to assist.
2: It makes me angry. It makes me sad.
0: Yeah, makes her daughter angry, makes her daughter sad. Really good job in that story there by global reporter Catherine Urquhart. Uh, let's discuss this situation now with Trevor Halford, B.C. United, M.L.A., Surrey, White Rock. Very pleased to welcome him back. Trevor, thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Yeah, and thank you for highlighting this situation here. And I, I believe, we heard a, a news update earlier this morning, Trevor, that it appears the heat is still off in this building. Is that your understanding?
1: Yeah, and I, I just actually came from the building uh, about half an hour ago I actually did meet with with the building manager I had what I would call a fairly direct conversation um you know the fact is is that uh, people in that building have been without heat as you reported since last Friday uh, we've had record low temperatures we have uh, seniors there uh, the woman that you referenced was 91 years old she is heating her unit with her oven that is Yeah, that yeah, is, this, yeah. Is
0: unbe- this is unbelievable. Yeah. And you heard her reference that in the clip we played and the, the pictures on Global News last night were absolutely heartbreaking. You got these, these seniors who are turning their ovens on and opening the oven door to heat their place up, huddling under blankets. Yeah. My, my goodness. I mean, what, do you, what have you seen when you've gone into that apartment and, and taken a look around? Like, what do you see there? Like, wh- what's going on? Why well, is this happening?
1: I I see desperation and I see some fear, honestly, and this is something that, you know, we had the cold snap and it was unbelievably cold on Monday and we had an elderly woman come into my office and my office is about a block and a half away from these apartment buildings. I was here on Monday, she came in, she, uh, she explained the situation, my staff immediately, I told my staff to get over there immediately to assess the situation, they did. Um, and they were absolutely horrified with what they saw and it, it just wasn't one or two units, we're talking about uh, multiple units there um, that have been going without heat and are making drastic decisions to and to, how they heat their place and a lot of the, you know, portable heaters they're using um, are unsafe. These are these are quite small apartments that have, you know, sometimes there's a lot of clutter in them. Um, and so you're you've got massive fire hazards. I just met with the White Rock RCMP to go through that to make sure that you know we're doing wellness checks on every resident in there, and then they've got what they need. But I'll tell you, um, I am absolutely sick about this. I'm furious about it, and I am not going to be stopping. I told that manager. I'm going to be back over there this afternoon, and that heat. There is there is absolutely no rationale for why these people aren't being properly taken care of, and why this heat has not been fixed. There's not one excuse that this guy can give me that will justify the circumstances that these people have been under for the last. Well, seven years.
0: did he did he give you any explanation at all?
1: I uh, yeah, I you know it was there was a power outage, and then there was issues with the uh, boiler, and you know, and getting people out and getting this out. I, I don't care. Um, that happens if you were a property management company this is your job and we were warned that we were going to be in a cold snap um, and that these people depend on these housing units um, and they've lived there as you indicated for decades so figure it out and figure it out now and at the end of the day this comes down to money and you know and I I understand that I pointed that out to him and I said listen um, you know these people pay their rents Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how old the building is, you guys are in charge of maintaining it. If there's an issue, you need to fix it. And that, you know, heating is a basic necessity of life. And especially when you're 91 years old, um, you shouldn't be relying on your oven to, uh, to provide heat in your apartment.
0: Yeah, that is for sure. The building is managed by a company called Rockwell Management and I reached out to them this morning to try and bring them on the show or get a statement from them and I still have not heard back from them and I know Global News and probably every other newsroom in the city is trying to get a hold of this company too and they don't appear to be making any sort of public statement. Let's have a little bit. Go ahead, Trevor.
1: Yeah, no, well, when I got there this morning, there was, you know, I, I, there was a bit of bit of panic in there, and I, I understand that, uh, but it shouldn't take a news crew um, for you to realize that, you know, you need to go in there and do your job, and you need to do it properly. So, again, I'll be going back this afternoon, and they've made a commitment to me that there will be heat, and uh, and we need to make sure that they're held accountable to that.
0: Let's have another listen to the global news story, Catherine Urquhart, the uh, fine reporter over there, and you'll hear... In this report here, Roxanne Black, your constituency assistant in your office there in White Rock. Let's have a listen.
4: 89-year-old Waltrop David is also dealing with flooding from a burst pipe. I came in on Monday and it was freezing cold in here. None of her radiators are working. A large
0: percentage of suites at Haas Apartments in White Rock are without heat and have
2: been since last Friday.
0: Okay, so this is extraordinary. This has been going on for a week here now, especially during this record cold snap we had here last weekend, too. And we heard your constituency assistant in there trying to get some action as well. So there was there were burst pipes in there as well, too, huh? Yeah, and,
1: you know, I just talked to a few people, one with the RCMP, and, you know, they're pretty disheartened with what they're, they're seeing in there and the, the standard of that building right now. Um, You know, we understand that there's a lot of, you know, with the temperatures, there's burst pipes happening um, all over the place. But, you know, this is something that, you know, it's leading to larger issues and especially in these older buildings and in White Rock, we we do have quite a few older buildings. Um, you know, that we make sure that are being properly maintained. And if, you know, that's the thing, right, is that, uh, you know, if these are being maintained by property management companies, um, they have a due diligence to make sure that they're well looked after. And I'm not, uh, I don't have confidence in what I'm seeing right
0: now. Yeah. And we heard in the report, people just describing that maybe there was a problem with the, the boiler in this building and radiators not working like it's, this sounds like they've got some pretty ancient infrastructure in there for heating the building. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an aged building. Um, definitely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we have aged buildings all over this province and, you know, there's, there's, you've got to maintain them. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is or isn't the case in this particular building, but I can tell you, um, you know, as of last Friday, we, you know, they're, they knew that there was a problem, and they knew that they need to address it. And I'm sorry, but seven days is is too long for these people to yeah. be going without
0: without the yeah. basic
1: assessment that they need.
0: Yeah, that, that is for sure. Let's take a listen to Michelle Harvey here, and she is the daughter of Odette, the elderly lady we heard of first. You're going to hear from her again here, too. Listen to this. This is heartbreaking here. Let's listen. Eighty-nine-year-old Waltrop David is also
4: dealing with flooding from a burst pipe. And I Wrong came clip. in on Monday. I just don't think they
2: care. They just are after the money. As long as they collect rent, that's really their main concern.
0: Give me some heat. <laughs> that's all I want. To just, just have some heat, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. all I want is just some yeah. heat. This is all she wants. Well, you know, my heart was breaking watching this this lady on on Global News last night. Yeah, Trevor, your thoughts? Well,
1: what, yeah, I know. it was really hard to watch her daughter um, go through that. And uh, it was quite emotional. You know, her daughter was coming in to help with the situation from Edmonton and to see your, your 91-year-old mother, um, you know, having to rely. And, you know, when you get to a certain age and, you know, sometimes you may forget to unplug things or, you know, close the oven door and things like that. And that's quite scary. And, uh, you know, that's why I have told that property manager, I said, listen, like, you're going to get to know me really well here because I'm mm-hmm. going to be at this place every single day, uh, you know, two, three times a day. I'm going to go back after this to make sure that you guys are doing your job because it, it needs to be done. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I'm not going to have a weekend uh, go by where I've got 47 units of people that, uh, you know, are you know, trying to huddle and open their oven in order to get the units heated. Unacceptable.
0: What what is the law in British Columbia on this? I mean, as you said, we're talking about necessities of life here. I mean, the the, the management of this building—they're required to heat the building, correct? Absolutely, and I think yeah. that
1: there's going to be a lot of questions that I'm going to be asking, um, you know, with the RTB and, and others. And I've I've spoken with uh, with people at the city of White Rock who are, you know, uh, very responsive. Uh, and I've spoken with the RCMP on this, and you know, my number one priority right now is to get this fixed and get these, yeah. get these people into a better quality of life than what they're experiencing. Then we do need to look at what the, what the ramifications and the consequences are uh, you know, when this happens. And you know, part of the struggle too, Mike, is, and I've heard from tenants, not just in this building, but other buildings uh, here in White Rock and South Surrey, is that there is a bit of a fear. Right, and you know, they're we're in a housing crisis right now, and you know, a lot of these people, as you referenced, have lived there for decades. So they're afraid to speak out, and they're yeah. afraid. You know, they don't want to cause trouble. They don't want to do this. They've, you know, they've got low rent there right now. They they would be um, in a really bad spot if they had to move, and they're they're terrified. And you know, I heard that a number of times this week. I heard it again today. So you know, that's why they came to me, and I'm I'm grateful that they did. Um, You know, and I'm going to work hard to make sure that we get this uh, get this into a better spot for them. But we also need to make sure that we're all doing our part here because this is uh, I'm sure this is in an isolated case.
0: Okay, great job uh, speaking up and advocating for your constituents, may I say. Trevor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike.